Lin Hai Tar is a New York Times best-selling author whose latest thriller has been described by Lee Child as a spooky, suspenseful masterpiece that's super recommended. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and Lynn's long-awaited new supernatural thriller The Enlightenment Project combines cutting-edge science with demonic possession. Noah Archer is a renowned neurosurgeon with an impressive success record and a dark secret. It's a not-to-be-missed read. As usual, we've got a free book to give away, one of Sylvia Price's cosy mysteries set in Canada's picturesque Cape Breton Island, perfect for those who enjoy new beginnings and countryside landscapes. Details in the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget you can get exclusive bonus content, like hearing Lynn's answers to the five quickfire questions, by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter for the cost of of less than a cup of coffee a month. We've got a new feature starting on Patreon in June, Encore, a once a month short chat with authors who've already been on the show talking about their latest book. First up in June is popular international author Jill Paul talking about The Collector's Daughter, her new dual timeline novel, about Lady Eve Herbert, the English aristocrat who made history with the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Details at patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Lynn. Hello there, Lynn, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. I am delighted to be here and I cannot wait to talk to you. Great. Look, you're the best-selling author of numerous thrillers that have been included in things like the New York Times list and the London Times bestseller list. But this latest one is also recommended by none other than Lee Child. It's called The Enlightenment Project. It's a supernatural thriller. And Lee Child called it a suspenseful masterpiece, super recommended. That must have been giving you quite a nice little jolt of achievement, did it? Absolutely. I love him and I love his books and I love how kind he is to novelists like me. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. Now, as we've mentioned, it's a supernatural thriller and it's really got an unusual twist. It's cutting edge science meets demonic possession and it gets into exorcism. Now, I wondered where did this idea come from? Well, two places. One, when I saw The Exorcist, which most of us have seen and read, it really scared me. I reacted on a very visceral level and I just couldn't help but wonder, well, what happened to that boy that it was based on when he grew up and did he tell anybody? I mean, if you're dating, do you say, by the way, when I was a child, I was possessed, but it's all okay now because I think that would be a real relationship ender. And uh, so I started doing research and the research on possession and exorcisms is just exploding these days. It's a recognized psychiatric condition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But the difference now is that it's recognized as non-pathological. 
as not a mental illness, but from without. There, It used to be recognized as a pathological mental illness, but now they see that there are times when it is not from inside you. It's something spiritual from without, which totally means the treatment is different, which is pretty, it's really pretty scary to realize they recognize that. And these days, you know, medicine is more integrative. So they're they're treating the spiritual, the physical, and the mental illness side. And then I started studying neurologists who were telling people to meditate. And I thought that was fascinating. And then there were the neurologists that were worried that maybe meditating was good and could also open the way to dark things. And once I read that, I was off and running. Yeah, yeah. And it is fascinating. I must admit, I didn't realize until I read your book that there's been a tremendous amount of research going on with neurology and with spiritual states so that they're looking at the brain and seeing what happens when people pray or meditate. And and there's quite a lot Mm -hmm. of actual science around that now, isn't there? Yeah, there's a field of uh, neurotheology where they're studying religion. And what I've learned is that there are various spiritual neurons all through your brain, not just in one place. So when my hero, Noah Archer, comes up with the Enlightenment Project to stimulate all of these neurons in the brain, it's a huge success. And people are cured of addictions and chronic depression. But of course, it opens the way to the dark side. And just this year at Stanford Medical Center, they're doing almost exactly what Noah is doing, not that I'm an expert in it, but it looks like they're doing the same thing, stimulating the same neurons. And they have a five-day protocol for people who have chronic depression and have had no relief and it's working. Wow. And there's this rather antique thing, some sort of helmet. Is it the Pershing helmet or something? Yeah, the gun helmet. (laughs) Well, that, that, I really am not sure how that worked. Basically, a lot of scientists treated it as a joke. And I'm not sure, I don't think it was stimulating neurons. I think it was just putting you in a place of complete isolation. But I, I don't know. I think there might have been a lot more interesting aspects to that, but nobody nobody took it very serious. Yeah, and it sort of looks like a Roman a- a- a helmet in a way, doesn't it? It looks really... Yeah, it does. It really does. I can see why they <laughs> kind of laughed it off, but I don't know. I'm a novelist. I can believe six impossible things before breakfast. In your book, you take it perhaps one step further in, in that they attempt to put somebody under this kind of analysis. I mean, I would almost call it MRI, but I'm not quite sure if that's what it is. But No, yeah. it actually is an MRI. An MRI while the exorcism is going on to see what yes. actually is happening in the brain while this priest is um, doing an exorcism. Now, I, I doubt that's ever been done, has it? That was something that is your novelist's imagination? That's my novelist's imagination. I just took it to the next natural step. Yeah. Yeah. And I really think that it would be a really good idea to try it and to see how a person's brain changes and to do MRIs, you know, because what happens if someone is completely possessed, they no longer want to be helped, they don't want an exorcism, how has their brain changed after they come to that decision? I think there will be physical changes in the brain for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So in this book, Noah, as you've mentioned, he has this experience as a boy and it it means that he becomes fascinated with that whole area. When he becomes an adult, he becomes a neurologist and he wants to specialize in this area. And he's developed a very close relationship with a priest from his earlier childhood experience. So the pair of them are like almost like the rescuers for people who who are looking for special treatments. And they've got a very close relationship and the whole book revolves around them and what happens with the Enlightenment Project. It, one of the things that the reviewers have mentioned is that it helps us to understand perhaps what it's like to actually go through one of those experiences. It's very real. Yes. The feelings and the actual brain experiences that you translate into the story. And I wondered, did you find first-person accounts? How did you know that's the way people felt? I did. That I get, I got everything from research. I read account after account of exorcisms, most of them written by the exorcist priests. I found out, and this astounded me, that M. Scott Peck performed two exorcisms during his career. Now, he was the psychiatrist that wrote uh, the Road Less Traveled about well, and I was shocked. And he and he said in his book, Glimpses of the Devil, that he absolutely did not believe in anything demonic until he ran across these two patients and he himself did the exorcisms. And it was his hope, which has happened, that the that the psychiatric community would start taking it more seriously. And he described in great detail what his patients told him afterward and during. He had them do a lot of writing about how they felt and how upset they were. And one of the things he said that really interested me was, you know, the person who's possessed is doing the work I'm assisting, but it's kind of like when you have a baby, the obstetrician isn't delivering the baby, you are. You're doing the work, you have the physical pressure and the physical difficulty and the exorcist assists. And so I found that absolutely fascinating. I've also talked to some therapists and psychiatrists about how they would treat people, how people felt, and that gave me a lot of insight too. Yeah. It seems to have been a theme that's perhaps fascinated you even before this book, because I see you've got other detective series and standalones. Obviously, you've been writing for quite a number of years, but they tackle edgy themes. And in one of the, those series, the Lena Paget series, for example, the book that was a Seamus Award winner was called Satan's Lamb. So this darker side seems to have been something that's attracted you before this book. Yeah, I find it just so fascinating. And this is the other side of it, the criminal side of it. And that's actually where I started because I was, you know, at the time I wrote the book, there was a, there was a lot in the news about satanic cults and their connection to crimes in Santeria. And I did a lot of research and found out there, there are a lot of criminals and gangs that used satanic, dark religious protocols it kind of as a cover for their crimes or to lure people into their cult and to give them the feeling of a dark spiritual strength. And because, you know, they can prey on people who are hungry spiritually and alone. 
and being in the cult and being in the gang makes them feel like they belong. And they'll adopt pretty dark rituals to sort of justify the crimes they commit. And Man, that's interesting. So Lena Pad Lena Paget was born. Yeah. Yeah. So where was that Santa? Yeah, Centuria. It's just it's and I'm not saying that, that is a religion of criminals. That is not at all what I meant. I just meant that it is a very interesting religion that brings in uh, a lot of ritual, some some Catholic, some Catholic ritual, and it's just it's just really an interesting ritual with a lot of protocols that that seem very supernatural. And so Lena Paget, I think she is actually on the trail of serial killer, isn't she? No, that is the serial killer is Sonora Blair. And that oh, okay. was my her first novel is called Flashpoint. And I wrote that because I wanted to write about two things. One, a female serial killer. And and this is a scary woman. She was psych she was a she was psychotic from birth. She's a, a psychopath from birth. Okay. Not just psychotic, but just psychopath. And I know someone that treats children like that. And those children, you wouldn't think it could happen in someone that young. Those children are terrifying. And so this is one of those children who grew up and she's quite a predator and, and she's quite twisted. And I wanted her, you know, her victims are men. And they're all good guys and none of them deserve to die. And, you know, when they stop and help this small, vulnerable, very dangerous woman, you know, she'll handcuff them to the steering wheel of their car and set them on fire. That makes her happy. So I thought that was fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) I just must add that Satan's lambs, it kind of makes me think of Hannibal Lecter, that that, that name. I, I don't know quite why, but that was... an award-winning book that was recommended by both Jonathan Kellerman and Tony Hillerman. So you've certainly had some heavyweights come in at your back, haven't you? I have. And they were so kind because they didn't know who I was. And I was a little baby author and I just wrote them. But I I wrote two novelists whose work I loved. Uh And and I, I had read all of their books and I loved all of their books. And they were so kind to me. They they read the book. They sent me a letters talking about the book and they gave me a quote for the book. And I am eternally grateful. Yeah, that's terrific. It is. Then you've got another series, the David Silver series, with mm-hmm. the theme of alien invasion, which also, once again, is, is out there a little, isn't it? So tell us about that one. Well, you know, that book, well, that first book, Alien Blues, was born because I had sold my first novel. I mean, I mean, worked eight years and written novels and finally got an agent, finally got a novel sold. And it was in the production process and Random House bought out the publisher and X to their whole line. And so... <laughs> I was crushed and I was in a bad mood for an entire year. I guarantee you a whole year of a bad mood. And I thought, well, if I am going to be a failed novelist, I am going to enjoy it. So I wrote a book that had everything I loved. It had aliens. It had cops. It had serial killers. It had tunnels. It also had a ghost, but they made me take that out. But it had everything else I loved. And I sent that to my agent after just the first six chapters. And I said, I'm just having some fun with this. I don't even know if you'd like it. And he read it and he called me and he said, I love it. It's great. Keep writing it. I'm going to send it to the editor who's looking at that other novel of yours. 
And she called him a week later and said, I don't like that other novel, but I love these six chapters. I want to buy it. And I want to know if she'd like to write a series. Does she have any other ideas? And I lied and said, yes. And so he said, that's so great. She's going to call you in 10 minutes to discuss it. And I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. I don't know what I said. <laughs> we had a great conversation. And so, yeah, it became a series. So I, those are near and dear to my heart. Uh, so that you came up with a whole lot more ideas in 10 minutes. <laughs> I, you know what? One thing I do really well is tell is lie and make stories up. So I am a natural novelist. So that's no problem for me. <laughs> And you I know what I learned? <laughs> you know what I learned for all writers to know is that you do your best work when you tell the story you wish someone to, would tell you. Because that's what I was doing. I was like, all right, fine. I'm a failure. I'm going to write a novel that I'll love. That's what I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the review that somebody gave of that one. They said, the crimes are out of the silence of the lambs, the <laughs> cops out of lethal weapon, and the gritty future out of Blade Runner. I know. I love that. And it was like all my influence. I'm like, yes, I love that. And I love that one. And I love that one. So absolutely great compliment. That's what I was trying to write. So, you know, I was very happy with that. Yeah. Look, I noticed on your website that you um, studied with the iconic man of American creative art, Wendell Berry, when you were doing um a master's in in fiction writing or creative writing. Um, Tell us a bit about him and consider that our audience is 40% non-American. So there's quite a number of people who may not even quite know who Wendell Berry is. Okay, so actually I was working on a journalism degree because... Yes, because I was actually, I started college at 16 and I was storming the campus looking for every single writing course anywhere in the university, okay? And of course, I went to Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a brilliant novelist and philosopher who was writing about farm to table, you know, 40 years ago. He's a poet. He's an essayist. And he's he's won the, gosh, he's just gotten every word, every accolade, and, you know, and he was such a wonderful teacher. And, and he was a legend on campus. He was revered. And of course, I'm like, well, who in the heck is this Wendell Berry, right? So, but I take his classes and read his books and I realized, oh, this guy's the real deal. And he was so intelligent. It was a little scary um, because there would be no nonsense in class, but he had a lot of gravitas and a lot of wisdom. He was very generous with his time and he was very kind to me. He put up with millions of questions and And sometimes I would go in his office and ask him everything under the sun from farming to characterization, you know, and he would just sit and answer my questions. (laughs) He was really quite wonderful. And I really feel like that who I am as a writer, how I write my process, my craft, anything I do right stems directly from him. Oh, that's wonderful. We're taking a short break. We'll be back with Lynn very soon. Sadie's Vow is a historical mystery with a heart of romance, and it's Jenny Wheeler's latest book in her 1870s California series. It's published in June, and it's on pre-order at a special launch price at all ebook stores now. It's the first in a new trilogy with the same engrossing characters, twisty suspense, and heart of romance that has marked Jenny's other books. Pre-order it today at 
jennywheeler.biz. That's B-I-Z. And now we're back with Lynn Hightower. Now, you do teach master novel classes yourself. Now, tell us about that work. Well, you know, I love working with other novelists, and I think that I learned from working with Wendell Berry. I love the dynamic of novelist to novelist, okay? So when I work with my students or clients, we are working novelists together, all right? And I'm very pragmatic. And everything I teach, I pretty much model all of my classes and all of the work I do on on how Wendell Berry conducted his classes because he's the master, right? So if I'm doing it right, it's because of what I learned from him. And it is thrilling, you know, to to watch people's novels grow up. You know, it's, it's absolutely thrilling. And to see them find their way because there's, you know... There's so much information out there, and I think novelists have to be very careful who they listen to, and it's really actually quite simple. If someone tells you something about writing and it rings true and it feels like what you needed to hear, then yeah, listen to them. Otherwise, maybe don't. A lot of people who are very smart and and have good intentions, but who aren't novelists are looking at things from the outside in. And so sometimes they've got really good insights and sometimes they just box people in because they don't really understand how it was done and they can't uh, separate the threads, if that makes sense. Yeah. What would you see from your experience with working with um, perhaps less experienced writers? What's the biggest impediment to them getting a successful finished manuscript? I think, number one, there is so much information out there that they've got a lot of noise in their head and they have to learn to set it aside and then, again, tell the story you wish someone would tell you. Follow your instincts and work steadily. You know, people think, oh, wait, I'll get two weeks in a cabin in the woods and I'll write, 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 but you won't because you haven't built your momentum up. So I always say small, regular work sessions. Okay, to keep that momentum going. A lot of novelists feel like, you know, they're not allowed to write uh, because they're not published yet. And I would say writing is a decision of the heart. You don't need anybody's permission. But if anybody out there does need permission, Island Hightower give you permission to get out there and write. And you just, you fold it into your real life. You know, one thing Wendell Berry taught us that was very helpful was that Everyone has the idea that you have to stop your life for your art and your art must be number one. And that's just not very practical. You have kids, you might have a job, you might have a farm, you might have a dog that needs to be walked and you don't. That is the joyous part of real life. You don't abandon it. You just fold the writing in. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning that you had eight years and then that crushing disappointment when you finally did get into a publishing house. I know. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> so what were you doing in addition to your writing in those eight years? Well, I had three children, little bitty kids, under five. Yeah. So I was taking care of them. And then I would write when the, I got them all coordinated to take a nap at the same time. I had like an hour and a half a day. Okay. So I started out as a nap time novelist. And I would be so tired that I used to like hold a cup of coffee while I wrote 
And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I would fall asleep and I would know from how cold the coffee was, how uh, long it had been sleeping. <laughs> And I and my kids always woke up at the cliffhanger right when the chapter got interesting. And so I always like ended my chapters on a cliffhanger and the chapters were really short. And then I went to another one and I, in interviews, people would say, that's such an interesting style, that short, quick cliffhanger style you have. How did you develop that? And I'm like, do I admit that it's because that's when my children woke up from their naps or do I just say, oh, that was just my literary inclination. But, you know, it was when my kids woke up. And that's how I developed my short chapter style. <laughs> and they always say that it's the best place to leave it off when you're writing is at a cliffhanger because you come back to something really interesting. So I maybe- know, and it happened. They, every single time it got interesting, one of them would wake up. Yeah. <laughs> And are there any manuscripts from that eight years that you would think to resurrect? Oh, yeah. You know, I wrote a book called The Piper about phone calls from the dead, and I'd like to revisit that. And I have another exorcism novel in mind. It's based on true events, which I find quite terrifying. And I've got words in my head on that one, and I'm doing a little research, but it's quite scary and it's sourced in one particular place. And I'm thinking, should I go there or not? You know, I'm probably going to, but I may keep a distance because it's evidently a still very active, dark place. And I mean, I wouldn't have believed this story if it hadn't been told to me by someone I trust implicitly. So I'm pretty fascinated. Wow. That is, they both sound fascinating. Look, Looking a little bit more at your wider career, if there's one thing that you would attribute as the secret of your success, in quotes, what would it be? (laughs) Well, the secret of my success is that I'm just so incredibly stubborn and I refuse (laughs) to give up. And I think the more stubborn a novelist is, not about, you know, doing it their way, but about not giving up the more likely they'll be to get published. And, you know, I just think that a lot of us who write are going to do it either way. We're going to be writing our novels and telling our stories, and hopefully they'll make their way out into the wide world in the hands of somebody that would like to read them. But, I mean, you just don't give it up. It's what I do. So um, great to be published, but I'd be writing novels either way. Yeah, that's interesting because there's always, there's another question that I like to ask, and that is, What was your main goal when you started out? And it sounds to me like, as you've said almost, that it was simply to to write a story you like to read and that being published was almost just an add-on to that. that Well, I wouldn't put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) I I did. I've been writing. I started my first novel in the fifth grade. Okay. And um, because I always ran out of books, I read really, really fast and I don't skip a word and keeping me in books is impossible. Like everybody says, I've got so many books to read. I can't throw them. And I'm like, that's nice. I'm running out again. (laughs) So I had to write my own. And yeah, I would write no matter what, but you know, it was a big goal to get a novel published. And then when one gets published, your goal hits reset. Okay. I want to get another one published, but yeah, I do it either way. Yeah. 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 And have you ever been tempted to be an indie pub, indie published writer, or are you you're all trad, aren't you? 
oh, I'm whatever will take me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> whoever will work with me, I will work with if they're good. You know, now, you know, right now I'm working with a very great independent press, Severn House. They start in Edinburgh. They have offices in London and they're just doing fabulously. And they, they love genre fiction, which is what I love to write. So uh, match made in heaven. Good, good, good. Let's just turn to Lynn as reader. You say that you're a very fast reader. Tell us about your tastes. And, I mean, would you call yourself a binge reader ever? And who do you actually binge read? I am a binge reader 24 hours a day. <laughs> I am always reading a book. I, you know, I I don't like to leave the house without a paperback tucked into my purse because my biggest fear is I'll have some free time and where's my book? Okay, because I don't want to live in the real world 24 hours a day. I want either I want a novelist to take me to a place where I want to go. And I'll read anybody, any genre. I will read Westerns. I will read thrillers. I will read literary. I will read. Oh, my God. I love Georgette Hire's Regency Romance. I, I love her books. I read them over and over and over again because she is brilliant with character and humor. She's fabulous. I love Ben Stead Safari by Rachel Ingalls. She was so subversive. I love Robert Goddard, Reginald Hill, P.D. James, Brian Moore. My gosh, Diane Johnson, Ann Tyler, Martin Cruz Smith. It's endless, endless. I will read anyone that tells me a good story. But I do think a novelist has, you know, has to deliver. You have to tell a good story. And I I will not read novelists that leave their readers in despair for no good reason, because I think that's just cruel. Mm. Yeah. So name a couple that you've read in the last uh, two or three months that you'd really recommend to people who are listening, ones that you think. Put, take Try this one. Okay. The latest, Le Carre, The Silver View. I loved that because it was looking at the spy services on an ethical level that I think he was hesitant to publish until after his death. And I thought that was a very, very fabulous novel. That's um, John le Carre. Yeah, yeah. And it was published posthumously. Yeah, he worked on it and then his son uh, finished it and published it. And it's a little different from his others. And it's very cutting edge thinking about espionage and how it really works and how people get chewed up in that kind of a system. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a brutal world. And I thought it was a brilliant novel. I mean, I read it and then I put it down and I picked it up and read it again mm-hmm. um, because I really was struck by it. I've been, I just finished reading the novels by Carlos Ruiz Zafron, and those are really good. Um, mm-hmm. Of his books. They're so mysterious, so gothic, so entrancing. I love those books. I think he's fabulous. Yeah, great, great. Those are my two latest. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing that you were going to change about your creative career, what would it be? Well, I will tell you, I don't think I'd change anything, but that's not because I didn't make a million bad decisions and I didn't screw up a thousand times and I didn't get really lucky and and things 
I had extraordinary things and terrible things, but they all brought me to where I am and they made me the writer I am. And right now I think I write differently than I used to. And I'm, and I enjoy it more. So it's all just material and it all got me to where I am today. So I'm not trying to be Ted talky. Okay. Cause I really did uh, make a lot of mistakes, but I just think I wouldn't be the writer I am now if there were any changes. So no regrets. Yeah. Interesting remark about enjoying it more now. Tell us a little bit about your process and how it might have changed to to what you do today? Well, a lot of the reason I enjoy it more now and and a lot of the things I talk to my own writers I work with about are if you know that you're going to, like the first draft, okay, when I have a new novel, it's like a love affair. So why wouldn't I want a new love affair, right? Okay. So, and you write the first draft and you just think it's so wonderful and you just love it. Okay. And then you set it aside and you read it again and you bring in what I call the writing police in your head. Right. And, and then, you know, you're going to be sobbing in the floor and frustrated and upset and you're going to go, oh, maybe I shouldn't be a novelist. Maybe I can't do it anymore. Maybe I forgot how to write. But since I always think that with every single novel, I go, well, I know that I always think that. So my angst is like reduced to about 25% of what it used to be. All right. And I only, I only sob in the floor once or twice instead of every day. So if you know to expect it, that's good. I know to write regularly, daily, or like Monday through Friday to keep the momentum going. And I know how to restart because real life happens and you get away from the book and I know how to get started back up again. So it's just like, I have enough experience with the process so that when I get myself into trouble, which I do on a regular basis, I know that I know how to get out of it. And I think that takes the pressure off. And now it is just, I have more time to write. And so it's uh, very joyous because I'm more in love with my stories than I used to be. Yeah. And that, that distinction they make about plotting or pantsing, you know, whether you do a lot of outlining and detailed planning ahead or whether you just allow the muse to speak, which side of the, the, the ledger would you be in that? I so much love that you brought that up because <laughs> people who talk about planners and pansters are the people who are not novelists, ah. okay? They're looking and going, oh, some people plan and some people write by the seat of their pants and they divide you into two groups. Yeah. All novelists are both, sometimes at the same time. And when they feel like they are divided into one camp or the other, it causes them great anguish and it really interferes with their work. And what I would tell novelists who are struggling with this is there are times to plan and there are times to write and it could be on the same day, okay? If you have words in your head for a scene, you don't ignore those and say, well, gosh, I would really love to write that scene, but I haven't done all the plan work. No, you write it. And if you're writing and having a really good time and you're going off on tangents because let's be honest, you don't really know what your story is, but you're having a good old time, then it's time to plan. And if you don't know that, you will hit a brick wall right at about a page 103. And it's not because you have writer's block, which does not exist. 
It's because you don't know where your story's going. So kick back and do some plan work. Every writer has a different process. So I encourage them do some planning, do some writing, do what you need to do and go with what's in your head that day. And do not listen to people who put you in one camp or the other, because even though they're well-meaning, they're completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm opinionated. (laughs) You're right. There is a tremendous amount of advice out there now. And you find that if I mean, you know, as someone who started writing fiction in the last few years, if you if you stop to listen to all the advice, you'd never get anything written. Yeah, and you want you want to know what the other one is that drives writers crazy? Just a quick one. They uh, say to you, "Show, don't tell." Yeah, and that is so vague as to be useless. You show the emotions of your characters because it's more nuanced. So you don't say he's angry. You say you know, she put a fist through the window and that gives you a lot of information right there. Okay. So yeah, you show that, but you cannot show a plot. You have to tell it. You absolutely have to tell the plot. And I get writers that come to me in despair because they're like, they've written 500 words and the novel doesn't make sense. I'm like, would you please just tell us what we need to know? And they're (laughs) like, but can you? I said, it's legal. It's necessary. It's crucial. And they say, can I just say it? I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And it's like, you know, the angels are singing and the heavens are opening up and they're like, but it's so easy. I said, I know, right? (laughs) Gorgeous. Look, what's next for Lynn as author and looking ahead to the next 12 months? What have you got on your desk? Oh, I'm a very bad girl. I have two love affairs going on right now and I never do two books at the same time. Never, never, never. Everything's all one, but I'm halfway into the first draft of a thriller and that it's I'm just madly in love with it. And then I've got words in my head for another one and I just have to stop and write them down. I've got two or three scenes, you know, but this is my main one. And the main thing is I'm just, I'm in the good part where I'm in love and I've got, oh, maybe three months before I'll be facing the writing police and the sobs in the floor. So I'm pretty happy right now. It's interesting that you mentioned the sobs on the floor because Almost mm-hmm. every author that I talk to, if this subject comes up, they admit that there's that dark moment in every story where they think that it's not going to work and that they've lost the gift for writing. And and the most established writers still go through that, mm-hmm. uh, that heartache, don't they? Yeah, the only difference is since I know I'm always going to do it, then I know it's going to be all right. And I have the confidence that I will think my way through it. And I will figure something out. And also, I have no problem throwing stuff away that isn't working. It doesn't bother me any, even a little teeny bit. So if I have to toss something and move on in another direction, I think half your problems come when you try to hang on to things that aren't working. Just kill it and move on. Yeah. Yep, yep. And just as a sign of the times, has this pandemic business affected you too much? Well, I hate to admit this, but I have a sort of pandemic skill set, which is that I'm very solitary and I'm quite happy um, by myself, working on my novel, rambling around with my giant dog and, and, and reading books and writing. So it was like all the pressure's off. Oh, no, sorry, I can't socialize. There's a pandemic, which is not to mean that I'm not greatly sympathetic for people who aren't solitary like I am but it was actually for me a wonderful relief that I could focus on the work and just say oh sorry pandemic I I can't go anywhere (laughs) right (laughs) that's awful (laughs) 
Now, look, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I love it. That's the end game. So although I'm very solitary when I write, when I'm launching a book and I'm going out and doing the Lynn Hightower show, it is so much fun because I don't get out much. So (laughs) just talking to other humans is thrilling. And the whole point of writing is to get your books in the hands of anybody that might want to read it because we read, you know, so that we don't have to live in the real world all the time, but also so that we're not so alone in the world. You know, mm-hmm. if these characters can deal with it and they're okay at the end, then you can too. And so I just want our readers to know you're not alone. I'm writing for you. And go to my website, which is lynnhightower.com. And there's a, a form you can email me. Just tell me how you're doing, what's on your mind, and I'll write back to you. And also, there's a wonderful picture of my beautiful dog, and it's worth going to to see her, too. Now, what sort of a dog? I must admit, I've looked at your website, but I didn't notice your dog. I'm terrible. She's there. She's there, <laughs> laying in the grass, holding a ball. She's a she's a German shepherd. Uh-huh. And, uh, yes, and she guards me, and she's head of my publicity team. And she's <laughs> very... <laughs> And when I write, she sits with me, you know, she just brings a good energy to the room. And when I was writing the the Enlightenment project and getting very terrified writing late at night, it was very good to have a giant dog right there keeping me safe. (laughs) That's gorgeous. Look, thanks so much, Lynn. It's been great talking. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, we have author Ella Carey and her epic, heartbreaking World War I story, The Girl from Paris. The story takes us from Paris to New York as seamstress Vianne believes she lost her sister in the war in a seeking refuge somewhere way away from Europe. But she's forced to face a new reality. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and until next time, happy reading!